You know, whenever we bring in a guest speaker, there's a lot of thought, a lot of prayer that goes into just who to invite to speak, to teach into the life of Lake Hills Church. And so whenever we bring someone in, there, there's a little bit of nervousness attached to that. Will this person connect with our church family? Will our church family receive what they're teaching? Today is not one of those days. Ben Young is a friend of mine since I was in the fifth grade growing up in Houston. His dad, Dr. Ed Young, is the pastor of Second Baptist Church where I grew up. And he and Julie, my wife, are actually first cousins. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Ben's message for our church today is one of such hope, such promise, such reality and truth that God's gonna use it in a powerful way in the life of our church and in the lives of every single one of us. So I wanna ask you if you would right now, stand to your feet and give a crazy Lake Hills Church welcome to my friend, to Julie's cousin, pastor and author, Ben Young. Thank you. Please be seated. That's kind of like giving the tip before the meal has been served, but I'll take it because I need it. Um, I'm so thankful for Mac and Julie for having me here today. And uh, as we all look forward to the holidays, Thanksgiving is right around the corner, to be surrounded by the people we love so much and tolerate at times. Okay, I know it is. I've all been there. But no, thanks for Mac and Julie. I remember when the church was just starting and uh, it was just a handful of people. And so I know a little bit about the blood and the sweat and tears that uh, Mac and Julie and so many of you volunteers and leaders and staff have put into making Lake Hills a phenomenal church here, right here in the capital of the great nation of Texas. Yeah, glad that you're here, glad you're here. Um, years ago, actually, I, I was in Austin, and I needed to get back to Houston. That's where I live. And I, I had to get back because my youngest daughter at the time had a volleyball game at the YMCA. So I had to get back. Got up pretty early, and we're, I was driving down the road, road I've been down many, many times on the way back to Austin, Houston, and things are great, humming along, things are fine, and then we start driving through Bastrop, Bastrop, and all of a sudden, it gets a little misty, okay? Fog, fog kind of sets in a little bit, but it's fine, still got it, just cruising, music's great, sounds great, just driving down the road, and then the fog gets a little thicker, and I kind of get a little concerned, and then as I keep driving forward, only as it does here in Texas, the fog got so thick, I had like a 10 to 15 feet visibility in front of my car, and all of a sudden, I'm back in driver's education, 10 and 2, trying to make it through, thinking, okay, should I pull over? I can't see. Don't turn on the bright lights. That doesn't help, and I'm just trying to make it, find my way back home to Houston for the game. So again, a familiar road. I, I know the signs. I know the gas station. I know where to drop off to get something good to eat. But the fog was so thick, everything that used to be normal was abnormal. And things that I used to take for granted were no longer visible. This is what happened when the fog literally fell on our car that day. Now, eventually we made it to Houston, got it there on time, made the volleyball game. 
But I thought about that in, in light of life. And I thought many times life is just like that trip I had from Austin to Houston and the fog that hit us in Bastrop. Because life can be like, man, things are great. You're going down the road in life and things are going your way. You're clicking and it gets foggy and foggier. And all of a sudden a dense fog drops down and you can't see in front of you. What used to be taken for granted can no longer be taken for granted. What used to be cleared is blurred and is blocked by the dense fog. It can be the fog of of unemployment. It can be the fog of finances. It can be the fog of illness or suffering or an accident or something that happens. It hits you out of the blue and all of a sudden you feel like you're trying to make your way down the road of life in this dense fog. That happened to me. Many years ago, when I was about to transition from college to graduate school, a fog descended upon my life. And here's what happened. I was a part of this group my, my senior year in college, and we were praying, and we were really wanting God to do really supernatural things and miracles, okay? We wanted to see God heal some people. We wanted to see God cast out some demons. We wanted to see God raise somebody from the dead, something minor like that. I mean, because the Bible says, right, he told his disciples, the works that I did, you shall do. And then Jesus said, I think it was in John 15, greater works will you do than I did. So it just makes sense. If I believe the Bible, God is true. Why couldn't God heal people today? Why couldn't God do miracles today? But what happened, I noticed, is that the more we prayed for miracles, the less we saw them. He said you could do all things, and we were doing nothing. Nothing was happening. We were praying, we were fasting, no miracles. So we doubled down. We prayed and we fasted some more. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. And my friends just kind of went on with their life, basically. But that began to bother me. It really got inside my mind and my heart. And I began to wonder why. Why isn't God answering our prayer? And then that turned into, why isn't God answering my prayer? Which turned into, why isn't God answering prayer at all? Which turned into, does God really answer and hear prayer? Which turned into, does God really exist? Is he really there? And when I got to that point, after a time of weeks and months, I realized that a dense fog of doubt was surrounding my life. The God who had been so clear to me was obscure and blurred. The trust that I had in his word was seemingly gone. Why did I need to believe in the Bible? Why should I believe in Jesus Christ? Why not other ways? And all these doubts just started hitting me wave after wave after wave. I didn't stay there for eight days or eight months. I lived in this space of doubt the fog of doubt, if you would, for about eight years. And I was, at that time, an external Christian, but an internal agnostic. And I could take things apart and deconstruct things in my mind and my beliefs, but I couldn't put them back together again in any coherent worldview. So today, here's what I want to talk to you about. This is really kind of my story with a little bit of preaching in it, Okay. And I want to talk to you about how I struggled and how I began to find my way through the fog of doubt and uncertainty in my life. And perhaps if you're going through doubt right now, 
or you have a loved one or a friend or someone you know, perhaps what I share here today and talk about can be helpful to them. If you're here and you're not a doubter, peace. That's great. Not everyone doubts, not everyone questions, and you have, you have a good gift of faith. I'm not trying to you know, make, someone, make someone doubt where there's no doubt. I'm just telling you a little bit about my story. So one thing that helped me out was a, a passage in the Bible that I'd read many, many times, but I'd kind of overlooked it. It was a flyover verse, so to speak. So most of us here, a lot of us here know Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's the Great Commission. Go into all the world, teach the gospel to all creatures, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. That's the Great Commission. But the two verses before the Great Commission are what I call the Great Omission. And these two verses really gave me some hope. I want to share these two verses with you here today. Matthew 28, 16 through 17. It says, so then the 11 disciples. Now then is an important word. Then means after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses alive from the dead. He talked with them. He gave them fishing advice. He ate breakfast with them. All kinds of things. Pretty amazing. So after that, resurrection, 40 days after that, the 11 disciples, and the word disciple means learner. Learner. We're all learners. Life, in life, we're always learning. As we're going down the road of life, whether it's foggy or whether it's clear, we are learning. We should have an insatiable desire to learn. The 11 disciples, the 11 learners, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now check this out. When they saw Christ, they worshipped him. I guess so. But some doubted. Wow. Some doubted. Now, for a long time, when I was in the fog of doubt, I thought, if God, if you would just do a miracle for me, just a small miracle, I'm going to pray in Jesus' name. If you could just move that chair just half an inch. Okay, then I'll believe in you, right? God, if you'll just make this light turn, it just turned red, I know. If you'll make it turn green right now, you know, I'll believe. God, if you'll make this right. So all these tests, because I was thinking, if I could just see a miracle, then all the fog of doubt would be lifted. But you know, I read this first, uh, maybe not. Go back in the Old Testament. The Israelites saw a lot of miracles. And what did they do? Oh, why me worry, complain, to be better in Egypt? They saw a lot of miracles. The religious right of the day, the Pharisees saw a lot of miracles. They didn't believe. The people who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, they didn't believe. These disciples had seen miracles. They'd seen Jesus alive from the dead. Some worship and some what? Doubted. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Now, sometimes a miracle does compel belief. It does, but not always, not always. So this verse helped me to start leaning into and to learn about the nuances of doubt. Doubt is a very nuanced word. It's kind of like love, all right? What's the, what's the opposite of love? Quickly, what is it? Hate. It, what's the opposite of love? Thank you so much. Somebody said it. Apathy. 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 
check this out. If you're in a relationship or you're on a break, you're broken up because they want space or whatever is going on, if they're, or they're mad, hey, if they hate you, there's hope. There's hope in hate. Hate has passion. Hate is not the opposite of love. The opposite of love, someone said it in the second row, is apathy. Okay, what's the opposite of faith? You're thinking, I'm trying to trick you. I am, I'm sorry. What's the opposite of faith? Doubt. No, I don't think so. I used to think that. That's what got me in a mess of a trouble. No, I would say the opposite of doubt is, is, I mean, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unfaith or unbelief. Because to have faith, like this chair over here, is to be in one mind, okay? I, I have faith, I trust in God, I trust in Christ, I am secure, I trust in Him, okay? The opposite of faith or belief is unbelief. In this chair, unbelief. I don't believe. Not that I doubt, I don't believe. I don't have trust. I, I do not believe. I don't buy it. Doubt is in between faith and unbelief. You're not fully convinced or trusting in one mind. You're not all over here in unbelief, just throwing it all out. You're in the middle. You're in the middle. The middle, in between. That's what doubt is, to, to waver in between. Or I, I like to think about doubt it's kind of a, it's like Switzerland, the country of Switzerland. Yeah, Switzerland is neutral, but it's icy. It's icy. So doubt, like fog, it also can be like ice. And ice can slide you as you're doubting closer to trust and faith and belief. Or doubt can slide you farther away from God over into unbelief. But doubt is just, it just is. It's, it's just, it's icy, but it's neutral. It's like, so what's wrong? It can slide you to unbelief or to belief. Think about the conversion story of an atheist by the name of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a, graduated from uh, uh, Yale Law School, was a reporter for Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist, an outspoken atheist. Eventually he moved from unbelief and atheism, he started to doubt his materialism, his naturalism, and he slid eventually all the way over here to belief in God and Christ, specifically grounding his belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, the converse is also true. Bart Erdman was a believer, I guess. He was going to Moody Bible College in Chicago. He began to doubt and doubt and doubt, and his doubt led to his deconversion as he slid all the way over to unbelief and skepticism, and he wrote the book, Misquoting Jesus. Doubt was, in the, was in, at play in Strobel's conversion from atheism to theism, to Christianity specifically, and doubt was in play in Bart Erdman's life as he was deconverted, if you would, if he's ever was converted, a whole other message. You can ask Mac about that. As he slid, as he slid all the way over here, unbelief and skepticism. But doubt was kind of neutral, kind of icy. It's what you do with the doubts that matters, not whether you have doubts or not. Most of us in this room will have doubts. 
Self-doubt, doubts about God, doubts about the future, doubt if God really cares, doubt if God loves us, doubt about why God allowed something horrible to happen in our life. You're gonna go through times of doubt. Don't freak out about the doubt. It's just icy, it's neutral. Let, it, let these questions slide you somewhere. Let, let them take you somewhere. Maybe you do need to dig deeper into some of the intellectual foundations of the Christian faith. Maybe you do need to dig deeper into more of the experiential aspects of the Christian faith. Christianity is, is both historical and experiential. It is both intellectual and relational. Let, the, let your questions, let your doubt take you somewhere. So when I learned to, uh, about the nuances of doubt, and I saw that even after these people had seen the resurrection, they still had their doubts. I kind of felt at home, more able, better equipped to process my own doubt. Now, the second thing that happened me, that helped me kind of lift the fog of doubt or deal with this doubt, the fog of doubt, was when I let go, let go of the myth of certainty. The myth of certainty. Now, I grew up in a tradition, conservative, evangelical, Christian home. And we would have people come in, guest speakers, just like I'm doing today, missionaries and evangelists and youth speakers, and they would, you know, just always, you know, ask this big question. It was kind of the thing. They would say, hey, if you left this place today and a Mack truck hits you, it was always a Mack truck. I don't know why. If a Mack truck hits you and you were dead and you're at the gates of heaven and Peter says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Would you be 100% sure if that truck smacked you that you would go to heaven if you died right now? Because if you're not 100% sure, you're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. And many times growing up, man, my youth and maybe I got even older, I was just like 100%. I mean, sometimes I was 100%, but usually I was like, I don't know, sometimes I was 90, 70, depending on what you know, sins I struggled with that week, maybe 45, 25% certain, you know, oh, you know. Well, if you're not certain that you're going to die right now, you're going to go to heaven, then you need to do this. You need to take a nail. There's a nail under your seat right there and come up and nail it into the cross, your latest sin. Or you need to pray the prayer again and really mean it. That way you'll have certainty, okay? And I don't know, it never worked for me. Maybe it worked for you. I'm not against nailing a nail on the cross. I'm not against... Sincerely praying prayers, I'm for prayer, but it didn't work for me because to me, I felt like the whole game was to achieve some type of psychological certainty, you know? So when I started to, you know, live in this fog, this space of doubt, this ice, if you would, um, and I was sliding around and questioning, I was still looking for certainty. I didn't have certainty over anymore over here with God and Christ and the Bible. I'd lost that certainty. So I said, maybe there's certainty in philosophy. But then I said, well, I know where there's certainty. Hey, there's got to be certainty in science. But the more I looked for certainty, the more uncertainty I saw. The more I looked for some logical construct I could build my life around, the more I saw antinomies and paradoxes and contradictions, even in science. I mean, look at the so-called Heisenberg Principle of Uncertainty. I think it's a funny name. Look at this quote right here. The Heisenberg Principle of Uncertainty says, the, the uncertainty principle protects quantum mechanics. Heisenberg recognized that if, there were, it were, if it were possible to measure the momentum and position simultaneously with greater accuracy, then quantum mechanics would collapse. So he proposed that it must be impossible. Now, are you following in there, okay? 
I wish I had that kind of score, you know, little like a ESPN football analysis. I could draw lines. It's possible for us to, you know, score on fifth down, but there's only four downs. It's impossible. That's what he's saying. It's possible. It's impossible. Then people, as we go on, sat down and tried to figure out ways of doing it. And no one could figure out a way to measure the position and the momentum of anything. A screen, an electron, a billiard ball, anything with greater accuracy. Therefore, quantum mechanics maintains its perilous but accurate existence. Richard Feynman, who's a theoretical physicist. So, as I started looking into certain scientific areas of knowledge, whether it be biology, whether it's chemis, chemistry, whether it's physics, whether it's mathematics, you bump into these uncertainties. You bump into these mysteries in any realm of knowledge. Look for, for light, light. We have a lot of light in here. You could have, we could bring a group of scientists in here today and ask them, empirically speaking, scientifically speaking, what is light made of? And these scientists would say, listen, is absolutely correct, and we're certain that light consists of particles. Little bitty particles, that's what light is made of. We could get another group of scientists, equally bright, went to the same schools, educated by the same professors, and they would say, we can give you empirical data and evidence that light is made of waves. Not particles, waves. <laughs> How can it be particles and waves at the same time? It's possible, but it's impossible. What do scientists do? They simply let both truths live in reality. They live on these parallel lines that are above our minds to understand, that are above our instruments and technology to figure out. There's certainty and there's uncertainty. The Bible is written by God. It's written by man. How can that be? Jesus is God, Jesus is man, how, how can that be? If you wanna save your life, lose your life. They're all true, they're all true. They're simply, they're simple realities in any realm of knowledge, any realm of knowledge, psychology, sociology, chemistry, physics, philosophy, theology, that are beyond our limited minds to understand. And God has made it that way. So whether we're looking through a microscope or a telescope or in the holy book, we're going to bump into these uncertainties, these areas, these realities that are beyond. And I don't know, after really struggling and trying to make my way through the fog of doubt, and as I read the Bible, I don't know if God really wants certainty anyway. I mean, you may or may not have psychological certainty about certain things. I hope you do. If you have great, God bless you and your certainty, that's great. But I don't know if that's really the game. I don't know if that's really what he wants. As I see in scripture, I think God wants us to trust him as a person, as a God who is there, who has spoken to us clearly through his son. Maybe a trust protocol, if you would. Thank you. Yes, we, we, we have this trust. He wants our trust. Hebrews 11 is the hall of fame of faith, the hall of fame of trust. It's about men and women who continued to move forward in their life, to drive down the road of life, to face 
a massive amount of uncertainty and suffering. God, I really can't see you now. God, I can't feel you like I did yesterday when I was in church worshiping you now. But I know that you're still good. And I know that you did send your son. And I know that he came, he died, he rose again. And he will give me the power, though I can't see it or I can't feel it right now, to make it through this situation. That's what the Hall of Fame of Faith, the Hall of Fame of Trust is all about. Sure, we need to be convicted of the realities of who God is, the truthfulness of Scripture. Sure, we have great evidences and arguments for the existence of God or evidences for the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that's great. At the same time, following God is not assenting to a bunch of propositions about him. It's responding to a person who calls us by name and calls us in the midst of the fog and the uncertainty of life. So when I let go of this myth of certainty and began to embrace more uncertainty, my relationship with God began to grow. I began to be able to negotiate my way through this fog of doubt. Look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. We usually hear this read in weddings, right? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, the love, okay? Look at the Amplified Version, talking about our uncertainty that we have to live with, which is fine. He says, for now we're looking in a mirror that gives only a dim, blurred reflection of reality as a riddle or an enigma. But then, when perfection comes, we shall see in reality face to face. Now I know in part, imperfectly. But then I shall know and understand fully and clearly even in the same manner as I have been fully and clearly known and understood by God. Isn't it great to know that God knows us better than ourselves, that we're known by God? And as we're known by God, as we go through the road of life, many times enveloped by fog, we know that there are realities that we do know and things that we don't know. And that's okay. So as I was sliding in this space, moving from fog to ice, as I'm sliding on the, the ice of, of doubt, what helped me? What helped me was learning the nuances of doubt and letting go of certainty. The last thing that helped me, and maybe it's the most important thing, I don't know. There are many others, but this is the last thing we have time for today. Um, is that I began to listen to other doubters. I began to listen to other doubters. Because I've discovered that one of the great tools that, I don't know, the devil or our own brokenness will use against us is to make us feel isolated. Whatever that is, whether you're dealing with doubt, you think, well, I better not... Let them know that I'm, I'm a doubter. I'll be kicked out of the club, right? Out of the, or, or I better not know I'm, whatever temptation you may be struggling with and not succeeding. I better not let them know that at church or because I'm the only one. Or I'm going through this time of suffering and, and life is tough. And I don't understand where God is, but I don't want to tell anybody that. And I don't want to tell God that because I'm the only one. I'm really struggling with my kids right now. I can't figure them out. 
The kids are probably saying the same thing. I can't carry my parents out, but I'm the only one. And this whole thing of isolationism can jack you up. It jacked me up. But what I learned is I began to listen to other doubters. That they're, and the Christian community around me, living today and all around, were, were doubters. I started reading people like, you know, C.S. Lewis and Martin Luther and Mother Teresa and Frederick Bigner and Blaise Pascal and Philip Yancey and all these people who dealt big time with the fog of doubt in their life. And I realized I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. And then I started going to the Bible. And you look in the Bible. The, story, the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. Job, 70% of Job is doubt. Job doubting God. Job ranting at God. Then you have the book of Psalms. It's full of doubt. David wondering, God, where are you? Have you forgot where I am? Do you have my email, my Facebook, Insta, anything? Where are you, God? I'm crying out to you. My enemies have all that. The haters all that. They're pursuing me. God, where are you? David's doubting. The book of Ecclesiastes, David's son Solomon. This entire book of doubts. Habakkuk, doubts. John the Baptist, his whole goal in life was to point out the Messiah. Jesus, you're the one. That's what he did. Who's the one? How do we know he's the one? John the Baptist says he's the one. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one. John gets thrown in prison. What does he do? He doubts. Of course, the patron saint of doubt, Thomas. All of his friends. Hey, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. He's alive from the dead. I'm not going to believe you. Thomas, listen. We've seen him. He's alive from the dead. Really, he's alive. I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. Doubt. All throughout the Bible. Listen, if you're doubting, or you know someone who's doubting, friend of yours, you're not alone. You are not alone. And whatever you do, don't doubt alone. And what I learned from Beekner and C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther and so many others, what I learned from Job and Thomas and John the Baptist is that they had the courage to doubt out loud in the context of community. You have a great community here, a great community, a great church, people, men and women, young people, who can help you process whatever you're going through. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to question. It's human. But don't doubt alone. Don't isolate yourself like I did for many years. It was stupid. Don't, don't, you don't have to do that. You're not alone. You're not alone. And God is not um, afraid of your doubts. It doesn't knock him off his throne. Your doubts and your question marks in your mind are mine. It doesn't put Jesus back in the tomb. Your mind's not that powerful. It's like a story, a really tough story that I heard about years ago. It's a, about a 14-year-old girl, and she had cancer, and it looked pretty terminal, and she knew it was going to be a tough journey. So as she started the journey, she started to journal. She wrote down in a journal her thoughts, her feelings, her prayers. She wrote down in the journal scripture and maybe encouraging words that she would receive to make it through the chemo, to make it through the treatment. 
And she prayed and she wrote in her journal and she took the chemo and she did everything, but eventually she didn't make it. She passed away at a very, very young age. And after she died, her parents were going through her stuff and they found that journal and they, they were looking through the journal at different things and a little note card fell out. And on that note card was, were four simple words. The moon is round. The moon is round. And so they began to wonder, what is that about? So they went back and they started reading in her journal entries, trying to figure out where this little note card, the moon is round, came from. And they came to the spot in her journal where she had written, even when it's dark and I can't see the moon, I know the moon is round. Even though I can just see just a sliver, a little piece of light from the moon, I still know, she wrote, wrote that the moon is round. And when the fog and the mist covered it and she couldn't see it, she said, I still knew the moon is round. And when she was going through the chemo and the treatments, and she said, I could only see a sliver of God's love or just feel a sliver of his, of his presence, I still know the moon is round. It's like she was reminding herself <laughs> She's like saying, I am not going to doubt in the darkness what I've believed in the light. Because the moon, the moon is round. It's round. Would you bow your heads for just a quick prayer, please? I want to kind of give two prayers here today, if you would. Um, first, I want to pray for people who are here, and maybe you can pray this prayer out loud, just, or not out loud, just pray it in your heart to God to say, God, I want to believe that you're there, but I'm struggling. Make me willing, God, make me willing to believe that you were there. And maybe that's your prayer in your heart today to God. Just say that. Say, God, I don't know if you're there, if you're not there, but God, make me willing to believe that you're, you're there. I want to believe. I want to trust. I want to start making my way, sliding my way, if you would, to you. I just don't know how to do that. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe that's your prayer. The second prayer is for others here who you say, man, I, you believe in God, but you really have not fully put your weight down and trust it in Christ and come clean with him and saying, Christ, forgive me and cleanse me and I want to follow you. I trust in you personally. So maybe you're here and that's what you need to do in your prayer needs simply to be that. Say, God, I want to trust in you today. Just pray that in your heart to him. God, I want to trust in you today and I want to ask your son, Jesus Christ, to forgive me and to cleanse me, and to put me on this new road. That's where you are today, right now. You can pray that in your heart to him, in your mind to him. 
He knows you, he understands where you are. God, I thank you that you hear these prayers. God, I thank you that you are bigger and greater than all of our sin and all of our doubt, all of our stuff. God, you're just, you just are, your gospel is. And we trust in you. We lean upon you today. Is our prayer in Jesus' name.